Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. This sermon series, from now all the way through Easter, is called The Way, and it involves an examination of Jesus' teachings from his Sermon on the Mount, as found in the Gospel of Matthew. The importance behind this sermon series is that Jesus is revising many of the laws that we find in the Old Testament. It's important for our understanding as Christians to understand where he comes from and how he interprets those laws. I hope you enjoy this series. The following sermon contains a video clip. Portions are not in English and have not been included in this episode. If you would like to view the clip in its entirety, be sure to watch the sermon video at fpcah.org at the 13 minute 24 second mark. Thank you. Our first reading today comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate in your heart any of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today, it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. This is the last part of chapter 5 that we are in in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I want to welcome all of the families that might be here through Faith Community Homes. Thank you for coming and being with us this morning. And because you haven't been here, we're, we do sermon series in this church, and we've been doing a sermon series called The Way, which basically works our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is comprised of basically three chapters from the Gospel of Matthew. So as we work our way through each week, we look at a teaching, an Old Testament law, and then we look at Jesus' commentary on that law in the New Testament. And today we have come to what is perhaps the most important and the most profound of all of Jesus' teachings, his commandment that we should love our enemies. So to begin this off, I'd actually like to begin by defining that word enemy for a second. The word enemy comes from the Latin root animicus, which is actually the combination of two separate words, in meaning not, and amicus meaning friend. So literally, an enemy is not a friend. I know that is revelatory and shocking to all of you in here, but I bring up that root for a very specific reason. You all have a lot of people who are not friends to you. 
but that does not necessarily make them your enemy, now does it? No, an enemy is someone who treats you a particular way. An enemy is someone who exhibits hostility towards you. Indeed, I think a true enemy is someone who sees your presence in their life as an offense to them and actually is actively working to remove your presence from their life. Now, you can't really feel this way towards someone unless you have a very specific emotion going on. And that emotion is what? You all know it? Hate, right? You have to hate someone. Now, hate, that's a very powerful word, isn't it? When you hate someone, when, that means when you look at them, you feel a total and complete absence of love. That's what hate means. So when somebody hates you, they have two options at their disposal. The first option in dealing with you is that they're going to try to minimize your existence. They're going to try to overpower you. They're going to try to control you. They're going to dominate over you so you can exert very little influence over your life. I remember when I first got to high school, my high school back in Virginia, it began in eighth grade. So I went eighth grade to senior in high school. And I was in one of my classes and there was this kid in there who was much older than us. He was like a sophomore or a junior, so that tells you that he had not made it super far if he was in a class with eighth graders. So we get to this class, and for whatever reason, he zeroes in on me as the person who he hates. And by hate, I am not using that word lightly. He made it his life's goal to beat me up. That kid was never in class, but man, did he know where to find me after school. He had like a magnet. He knew what he was doing. And so every day after school, this guy would follow me home, trying to catch me by myself so he could beat me up. Now what that did to me is it caused me to totally rearrange my life because this guy was so crazy. I couldn't walk certain places. I was always watching my back. I was always scared that he was going to show up somewhere where I might be. Now eventually, the situation did resolve itself because he just dropped out of school and disappeared. But I remember... When I was in my early 20s, I was probably like 21, I went to a restaurant with some of my friends, and he was a waiter at this restaurant. I hadn't seen him since I was 14. Now, he didn't recognize me at that point in time, and I had gotten a lot bigger since eighth grade, so I wasn't as worried about dealing with him in that way. But the moment I saw him, it was interesting. I could feel that fear. I don't know if you ever, that ever happened to you, but I felt this fear go down my spine. And it's because he was so good at exerting control over my life for that brief period of time. So control is your first option when you hate somebody. Your second option is that when somebody hates you is that you're going to go the next step and you're just going to try to eliminate them from your life by essentially ending their life. And this is why when somebody truly hates you and sees you as an enemy, it's quite scary because you never know when they're going to move from option one, controlling your life, to option two, ending your life. I remember, even though Chad, this guy's name was Chad, he never laid a hand on me, but I watched him fight people because he had gotten into fights with other people. I knew what he was capable of doing, and he also liked to carry around weapons like knives. So it was always going through my mind, could this guy one day snap and stab me and kill me? Now that's what it means to have an enemy. Based on that definition that I just gave you, would any of you in here say that you have an enemy? And I don't mean 
in the sense of somebody across the world who's plotting against you who you don't know. Somebody who you know who actually is trying to hurt you in that way. I mean, I can't think of anybody in my present life who I look at and I feel a total and complete absence of love, and I don't know of anybody who feels that way towards me. Maybe some people in the church do, but they haven't told me that. So I'm not aware of it. Just don't tell me I'll live in that blissful ignorance for now. Even Chad, when I look back on that, I don't hate that guy for what he did. Like, you know, it was a tough time, no doubt about it, but, you know, I really feel bad for him because when I look back on his life, I realize now at 37 that his behavior towards me was really a product of his life circumstances, which, frankly, were not very good. I did a little bit of research into his life, and what I came to find was he grew up, not surprisingly, in a very impoverished household. He didn't receive a lot of love from his parents. And on top of that, he was probably abused. And so when I look at him, I realize that his targeting of me was a lot less about me personally and a lot more about what I represented to him. Because I think I represented a person who was the exact opposite of who he was. You know, this is a guy who has nothing, and here I am, I have resources, I have support, I have a bright future ahead of me. He has none of those things. And so I think his targeting of me and others, it was probably more a result of him wanting to feel like he was in control, and he wanted us to feel what it was like to walk in his shoes, just for a little bit of time. He wanted to give out some of the pain that he had been given in his life, which is very common among bullies. This is what they want to do. It's usually a result of their own pain that they're trying to target others. So all of this, in looking back on it, it raises a really interesting question for me, which is, what are the root causes that actually cause hate? What are the root causes of hate that create enemies in our lives? What are the root causes of hate that create enemies in our lives? And I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few years. And yes, there are a number of small, petty reasons why we can create hate. So, I mean, we hate each other over things like disagreements, arguments, when somebody lies to you, when they're dishonest, or personal slights. Like, if you hold those things in, yeah, you can hate somebody. But really, when you're talking about true hate, pure hate, where people feel like they just can't stand you, it usually is a result of somebody coming into your life and tearing down everything that you worked so hard to build up. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. So, among human beings, there is this unspoken social contract that we have with each other. And that unspoken, unspoken social contract, it goes like this. That if you have worked hard to build something up in your life, whether it be your family, or your business, or your home, or your community, whatever you've worked hard to build up, then I'm going to respect the work and effort that you put into that. I'm going to acknowledge that it's wrong for me to interfere. So, for instance, let's take your relationships. If you're married or you have a significant other, that didn't just happen, right, out of the blue. That took a lot of work and effort on your part to form that relationship. You had to go out on dates with the person, right? You had to buy them gifts. You had to meet their crazy family. You had to do all those things, right, to form the foundation so that you could eventually marry this person. And then once you're married well, then there's a whole other thing that comes along with that because now, you know, you have to have enough money to make a home, you're going to have children, you've got to raise these kids, they've got to go out into the world. Relationships, they're a lot of work, they're a lot of effort, they're a lot of investment. 
Now let's say that I'm a person on the outside of that. I'm looking at your family unit, which represents years, often decades, of investment. And I'm on the outside of it, and I sit there and I say, you know what? I'd like to have an affair with your spouse. So I step in, and clearly I'm ignoring all of that hard work and effort. Clearly I'm ignoring the social contract. Clearly I don't care about all of your investment. I see something I want, and I'm going to take it for myself, regardless of the consequences. That is where hate comes from. The true source of hate in our lives is when somebody swoops in and tears down in an instant everything that you worked so hard to build up, what took you years to build up. And that doesn't just happen with adultery. It happens all over the place. It can happen with somebody coming in and robbing your business, destroying your livelihood. It can happen with somebody coming into your life with your family. They can hurt your friends or your family, even killing them. They can burn your house down. You can have that happen when somebody restricts or takes away your freedom or your independence. There's so many different ways that this can happen. Hate is the result of someone taking something from you that is either very hard or impossible to replace. Let me say that again. Hate is the result of someone taking something from you that is either very hard or impossible to replace. Now that we've kind of fleshed out the source of hate, I'd like to show you a brief documentary. It's a documentary about the war in Syria. And this particular documentary, it follows a man named Ahmad Judeh. Now Ahmad, he's a dancer who lives in Damascus, and he has a dance studio there. And I want you to watch his story. He's kept his dance studio going in spite of the civil war that's going on. And I think his story is one of the best examples of what it means to have something taken from you that you cannot get back. So let's take a look. And also my uncles, they did here too. And I will dance here for themselves too. Now, I don't know about you, but if anybody has a right to hate, I would say it's Ahmad losing five members of his family, or that little girl who was orphaned by the war. I mean, either of them, if I were in either of their shoes, I think it would be very hard for me not to be so angry and so hateful towards those who had ruined my life to not fight back. But yet, when you look at them, and what they're doing, they're making a choice. They're actually living the way Jesus talked about in the scripture that we read. Jesus says that when somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. They're living that way, which is an amazing thing. And Ahmad, rather than striking back with hate or with weapons, he chooses to dance. And he chooses to love those who are suffering from the wounds of war. Ahmad is on the path to living out one of Jesus' most profound commandments. He says, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now Ahmad, he's following the first part of this because he has clearly chosen not to hate his enemy, which I think is probably more than many of us in here could actually manage if we were in his shoes. But Jesus is asking Ahmad to take it one step further. 
Jesus is saying that he wants him to love those people who are responsible for the deaths in his family. And that he wants Ahmad to pray for those who continue to seek out his death. So you heard in there, right? You heard the gunshots? They were shooting at them. They were too far away to hit them. But they were being shot at in that interview. So Jesus wants Ahmad to pray for those people. Now, if that sounds impossible to you, it gets even harder because the Greek word that Jesus uses for love in this passage, it's agapo, or the way that we're used to hearing it is agape, which is literally translated as unconditional love. So when Jesus says that he wants you to love your enemy, he's not using that word love lightly. When you love somebody without condition, there, that means there is nothing that person can do to stop you from loving them. And an enemy, by definition, is someone who is doing everything in their power to stop you from loving them, right? And so, as crazy as it sounds, this particular commandment of Jesus, this is the linchpin around which every single piece of the gospel is built. This is it. If you understand this, then you understand everything that he is trying to do in the world. Because what he's asking here, this is quite unique. If you look at all the religions in the world, there are many religions that tell you not to hate your enemy. That's out there. You'll find that. There are no religions, however, that tell you that you should love your enemy, particularly loving your enemy unconditionally. No, no. He doesn't say that you should do that. And so we look today at this Leviticus text. And this is proof of this. So Leviticus, that's the Old Testament. This is the Jewish law. And it says that you're not allowed to hate anybody who is part of your own kin, part of your own family. You're not allowed to hate them. Now, when you look at this, you see you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The definition of neighbor is anybody who is your own family. So if you're an Israelite, it's a sin for you to hate another Israelite. But anybody outside of that, the implication is they're open for hate, particularly your enemies. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You can't just love your family. If the circle ends there, then we don't stand a chance as the human race. Jesus is saying that you need to be willing to love everyone unconditionally, even those who would love nothing more than to see you wiped off the face of the planet. So let's try a couple different scenarios, see how you do with this. Let's say that your son or your daughter, that they were at a nightclub, they were out dancing, and then a guy comes in with a machine gun and shoots them and kills them as he's spraying into the crowd. Do you think you could love that man with unconditional love? Or what if your brother or sister happened to be at a Bible study at a church and a white supremacist walks in and shoots them with a hollow point bullet. You think you could love that white supremacist with unconditional love? Or what if you were that little girl in the video that we watched? You think you could love the people who took your parents with unconditional love? I mean, based on the looks that you're giving back to me, I would assume that the answer is probably no, right? I know that for me, best case scenario, in the future I can maybe forgive this person, and then 
under very, very specific circumstances, I might be able to find some love for that person if they really changed their life around and they sought to really make amends with my family. But unconditional love, love without boundaries, that's not possible. And that's very important that you understand this facet of Jesus' teaching here. What he is asking you to do is not possible for the human heart. Naturally, of your own volition, you simply cannot do it. And that's what makes this particular teaching of Jesus so unique. Unlike all the other teachings that we've encountered up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot do this one by concentration of will and focusing on it. You can't work at loving somebody unconditionally who has hurt you in such an extreme way. The only way that you can do it is by having God's love in your heart. And so this is where Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it takes this very interesting turn. Because in truth, if you look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, you could actually strip God out of that entire thing. You could literally strip God out of it, and you could do most of those things on your own. But this one, you can't do it on your own. It's not possible. It is not true to the nature of human beings to be able to love your enemies, people who have hurt you in that way, unconditionally. The only way you can do it is by receiving that love from God and giving it to others. And so here, I want you to just hear this. This is very important. If you're a Christian, and not everybody in here maybe identifies that way, but if you identify as a Christian and you say, yes, this is how I'm going to build my life, then this particular commandment is important because this is the pinnacle of what it means to actually identify as a Christian. So if you're going to be able to do this, you actually have to understand what God's unconditional love is like in your life. If you have not experienced that unconditional love, then you have no capacity to give it away. And so the question that obviously comes out of this is, well, how do I have an experience of God's unconditional love? And I wish that there was some formula that I could give to you where it's like, well, do A, B, C, and then it'll just happen, and it's no problem, right? But it doesn't work that way. So I can only tell you about my own experience of it. Because my own experience, I think, is true to what a lot of people experience. So there was a certain point in my life where I was going through, and I came to this realization that I was limited in who I was as a person, that as a human being, I figured out I have limitations. And of course, everybody understands that. I mean, there's not a person in here who doesn't understand they have limitations. But where it struck me was that I realized that I was limited in my ability to love myself and to love others. That ultimately, when it came down to it, I did not have the capacity to do that in and of myself the way that I needed to. And so because of that, at the time, I started looking for other sources. And when I eventually read this particular text, it transformed everything for me because this is what helped me to understand why my love wasn't quite enough. Now, I don't want you to hear me as saying that the love that you have in your heart, that that's that that can't do anything. That's, that's not true. Human love can do a lot. We can do a lot with what we have naturally inside of us. The problem is, is that our love can't technically change the world in the way that Jesus is asking us to. And for proof of this, you just have to look around at the world that you see. I mean, if our love was enough, then people wouldn't suffer needlessly all the time, and the most vulnerable in our society wouldn't fall through the cracks. That wouldn't happen if our love was enough, because we wouldn't allow it to happen. But it happens all the time. 
I mean, it's just part of the society we live in because our love is not enough to deal with all of those things. We simply cannot do it. And so this teaching, what it does is it tries to draw that out for you so that you can accept that fact about who you are. Because think about what Jesus is saying right here. Just follow the logic for a second. Jesus comes to you and says, I need you to love your enemies unconditionally. And you say to Jesus, I don't know if I can do that. And Jesus, he comes back to you and he says, but that's the kind of love we need if we're going to change the world for the better. And you say to Jesus, but I don't think that kind of love exists inside of my heart. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. I know it doesn't. But you know where it does exist? It exists inside of God. And if you desire that love, if you want that love in your life, then you're going to have to open your heart and allow God in. And the only way that that can happen is by you recognizing that your love, as wonderful and as amazing as it is, is not quite enough. And so my hope for you today, as you leave from here, is that you actually might take this teaching very seriously. I hope that you would look at it and say, yes, that's something I want to do in my life. I want to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. But in wanting to do this, you have to recognize that you personally do not have the capability to do this on your own. And that's okay. Because even though you do not possess the capability, God does. And God can give that to you if you so desire it. And so if you're willing to open your heart and allow God in, that is the key to being able to change the world in the way that Jesus is asking us to change it. We can make a difference in this world, and we can change it for the better, but you have to have that love so that you can give it away to those in the world. In our community here, this is something that we work towards all the time. For those of you who haven't been here, we have a little saying. It's our tagline. We wear it in bracelets. It's choose love, be the light, change the world. That's what we say here. We say it at the end of every service. Choose love, be the light, change the world. And when we say choose love, we don't mean human love. We mean God's love, because that really is what changes the world for the better. And so I hope that you all realize, for those of you who are visitors here, thank you for being here today. But for those of you who are in our community, this is what we are aiming for. This is what we are trying to do. And I believe that we will change the world for the better. But we have to open our hearts to that unconditional love so that we can give it to others. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.